Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. With this episode, the TriDoc Podcast begins its second year on the interwebs, and I want to take a moment to thank you, my listeners, as well as all of those who have joined me on the program for the many interesting interviews and recurring segments that I've done during that time. When I started this podcast, I had high hopes that I'd be able to produce something that would inform and entertain. And based on the feedback that I've received and the continuing growth in listenership, it appears that I've been at at least somewhat successful. I'm counting on you, though, to help me get better. If you have ideas for how this podcast can reach more listeners or for ways that I can make the podcast more fun or informative, please do let me know. Reach out via my TriDoc Podcast Facebook page or email me directly at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Mostly, though, the biggest favor I can ask of you is that you help spread the word. I'd love to get this podcast to more listeners, and I really rely on word of mouth for that to happen. Thus far, I've reached people all around the world, from Canada and the United States to Australia, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Spain, and even India and Namibia. So thank you, and thanks in advance for any suggestions and for letting people know that you enjoyed the podcast. Over the past year, I've had a huge amount of help from some amazing people, and I couldn't be more appreciative. I can't list them all, but I do want to name a few. My interview with Lance Watson remains one of my favorites, and I remain grateful to him for his being a part of this and for his continued friendship, and, of course, for putting me in touch with Lisa Bentley, who also did an incredible interview. Maddie Pesch has been a delight to work with several times and to follow as she pursues her professional triathlon career. I've so enjoyed catching up with her from time to time, and she's been a huge help and friend of the podcast. Thanks also to Heath Dotson, who reached out early on and asked to be a part of this. My many friends and teammates from Dark Horse Triathlon have been great and have contributed a lot. Lucy, Lindsay, Bill, Michelle, Sean, and Ginny have all been on and have been great guests. My friend and colleague and partner for the Reels for Wheels segment, Janetta Iwanaki, has been a terrific asset, and I hope that you've all enjoyed her insights as much as I have. And so the first year of the TriDoc podcast comes to an end, but this is no time to rest on my laurels, for the second year is beginning and it promises to be better than the first. On the show today, I continue my exploration of the issues and controversies raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. Joining me for an interview is Dr. Samin Levinson, a clinical associate professor in nutrition at Arizona State University in Tempe. Dr. Levinson there is a certified sports dietitian who consults for several professional sports teams in the area and is ideally suited for this conversation. Reels for Wheels has two new suggestions for you, a heist film and a kung fu classic to help you manage your winter trainer rides. First, though, as always, I have a medical question to answer. Compression garments have exploded in popularity over the past 10 years or so as numerous manufacturers have crowded the marketplace. Triathletes absolutely love the stuff, as can be easily discerned by watching the run at any intermediate or long-distance race. But despite the fact that the makers of compression clothing make few claims about benefits to performance or recovery themselves, athletes do the work for them by continuously proselytizing about the advantages conferred by wearing these items. Now, it's easy to see why people love these clothes, but the question I'm going to answer today is, should they? Is there any science, really, to back up these beliefs, or is compression wear simply a new way to look fitter? Well, I'll have the answer for you, and that's coming up right now. The use of compression garments amongst triathletes has become almost standard. 
It seems that the majority of athletes are employing some kind of compression clothing for most of their races, though their use is really apparent in the longer distances, particularly on the run. The explosion in popularity of this kind of apparel really isn't too hard to understand. The marketing machines behind the companies that make them are really impressive, and the advertisements put forth by these companies are slick and very convincing. I think of the very effective 2XU campaign of a few years ago as a great example of this. Their ads were inspiring and incredibly well-made, and you would be hard-pressed to not find yourself thinking that you had to own these things, to be even a little bit like the people shown in the ads. And those ads are doubly good because they never really make any explicit claims about improved performance or recovery associated with the use of these products. But have no doubt, that is the underlying message that is being given, even if it isn't said in so many words. So what then is the truth about compression garments? Do they in fact confer any benefits in terms of improved performance when wearing them during exercise? Or do they give more rapid recovery when wearing them afterwards? Well, let's see what the science says. Compression garments have been around in medicine for quite some time. They're used in patients who have had surgery to improve blood return and prevent blood clots, or to decrease swelling in the limbs that can occur for various reasons. But Exercise compression garments have been around for a lot less time, and they differ from medical compression garments in a very important way, and that is in the amount of pressure that they exert. You see, medical compression garments are extremely tight and compressed with significant force, whereas exercise compression garments offer significantly less compression in order to not impede the ability to actually perform the exercise. The theory behind why compression garments should help is pretty simple covers a few different hypotheses. First, there are the purported hemodynamic effects of the garments. By keeping pressure on a limb, compression garments supposedly improve venous return back to the heart and decrease local swelling that can occur with prolonged exertion and exercise-induced muscle injury. Now, there's a fair amount of research looking into these effects, and in fact, nothing has really been found to bear out this theory. For the most part, this kind of makes sense. When we're exercising, our muscles are continually contracting, and this contraction works to squeeze the blood vessels contained within them, so that blood return to the heart is already pretty well maximized when we're training and racing. Wearing elastic compression clothes does little to actually enhance that. A second theoretical benefit of compression clothing is that it enhances sensation of joint position and reduces muscle vibration, leading to improved form and decreased fatigue. Now, here the science has been somewhat mixed. There does indeed appear to be some benefits from wearing compression garments in users having an increased awareness of limb and joint position. And, in a couple of studies, this has translated into slight improvements in maintaining good form over time. Similarly, several studies have shown that compression garments do in fact decrease vertical oscillation of muscles, particularly when jumping or running compared to when not wearing these types of clothes. However, these findings have never been shown to translate to any measures of improved performance metrics in any sport. Researchers have repeatedly found that runners were no better at any distance with or without compression gear, and the same was found for cyclists, despite these effects on position awareness and decreased oscillation. The other main theoretical benefits for compression garments are that they somehow can aid in injury prevention and have a role in enhancing recovery after prolonged or intense exercise. With respect to the former, there's no great studies out there, and to be clear, no manufacturer of compression garments that I'm aware of makes any claims of injury prevention associated with their products. As for recovery, 
There are some positive findings in the evidence to suggest that recovery is actually improved when using compression wear, but here again, there is inconsistency, and it does not appear to be true across sports. For example, most of the positive findings that have been reported when it comes to enhancing recovery can be found in the literature pertaining to weight training. There, objective outcomes at 24 hours do seem to be slightly better when using compression wear when compared to not, though it's really difficult to do those studies with any blinding, so it's hard to know if the study participants were influenced by wearing the garments or not. At any rate, those who wore compression gear did indeed have improved recovery and better efforts when lifting weights at 24 hours compared to those who didn't. Aside from weight training, though, there's little evidence to suggest that compression garments enhance recovery in any other sport. Runners certainly have not shown any improvement in repeat performance at any time intervals when running sprints or distance-type events with these clothes. And cyclists, too, have not shown any significant improvements either. Now, I did come across a single study that suggested that cyclists alone may have a very small benefit in recovery when using compression gear, but this was an outlier. The meta-analyses and review articles that I found reported no such positive effects. The last recovery issue that has been looked at extensively is the effect of the use of compression garments on the incidence of delayed onset muscle soreness, or DOMS. DOMS, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, is a result of exercise-induced muscle injury and comes about from subsequent inflammation and swelling that happens within the muscle cells as damage is being cleared out and repaired. Alas, among the many studies to look into this question, none have shown any benefit to the use of compression wear in reducing either the severity, duration, or incidence of DOMS. The one area in which compression gear continues to be shown to have positive effects, and really in my mind is probably the reason for which these types of clothing continue to be so popular, is in psychological benefits. People simply like the way they look in compression garments. I mean, honestly, who wouldn't? And they like the way compression garments feel. And I don't want to diminish the importance of these psychological effects, because they are important. However, if you're going to be spending anywhere from $50 to $100 for calf sleeves or full-length tights, I think it's fair that you realize that you really are getting an overpriced boost of self-confidence and not really any kind of performance increase or improvement in recovery. So the take-home points on compression garments are pretty simple. Despite what you may have heard or think or have gathered from watching the very slick marketing campaigns of the manufacturers, compression wear does not enhance performance in any meaningful way for cycling or running. Taking time in transition to put this stuff on is simply taking time out of your race with zero benefit. My advice is don't do it. You're much better off just heading out on course without it. As for recovery, if you're a weightlifter, then by all means, compression wear is definitely helpful for improving recovery and allowing for better lifting sessions the next day. For triathletes, though, compression wear offers really no benefits at all. But damn, this stuff will make you look really good and feel pretty good about yourself. Well, so by all means, if that's your motivation, I fully approve. Oh, and if nothing else, that 2XU video from a couple of years ago makes this point perfectly. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. For my regular interview segment of the podcast, I'm going to continue with my series taking a deeper dive into some of the questions raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. If you haven't seen the film or heard the first interviews in this series, I would urge you to do so, though it isn't necessary before listening to this one, as each can stand on their own. 
Simine Levinson is a registered dietitian and board-certified sports dietitian. She is clinical associate professor of nutrition at Arizona State University and has been working with athletes from all walks of life for over a decade. She consults with NBA teams on providing high-performance foods and works with NBA athletes to help them up their game through performance fueling. She strives to walk the talk by eating well, preparing most of her own meals from scratch, and being active most days of the week. Her favorite foods change periodically. Currently, it's a one-pot dish with brown rice, black beans, spinach, and celery. She's been practicing yoga for over 20 years and as an avid trail runner. The Sonoran Desert of the American Southwest is full of technical and rocky terrain, not to mention the several close encounters she's had with rattlesnakes and other desert critters. But for today, she's safe and sound at her computer, and she joins me from Phoenix. Welcome to the podcast, Simin. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, in your view, you've seen the film. What does the Game Changers get right and what does it get wrong about plant-based and animal product-based nutrition? All right. Terrific. I really enjoyed this film. And I will say that of the food documentaries that are out there, this is by far one of the best ones that I have seen, um, especially from a production standpoint, which probably doesn't come as a big surprise when we learn that James Cameron is, you know, put his weight behind this movie. Um, and there's a lot of scientific um, references and evidence that are pointed to in this film. And so um, I think that there are a lot of great things in this, in this documentary that I was very pleasantly surprised um, to see. Uh, you know, they, they point to a lot of different types of research and they interview medical doctors um, in the film. But I do think that in some ways it does tend to miss the mark, um, particularly in some of the overgeneralization of some of the different concepts and scientific research that are presented in the movie, they tend to really oversimplify some of the research and even some of the studies that they attempt to do in the documentary are really oversimplified. And the other thing that I would say that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way is this view of eating that's black and white, that it's either plant-based or it's heavy meat-based. And without really looking at finding a kind of a happy medium in between. So it was, it was quite polarized in that way. Um, but, you know, overall, like I said, I do think that this is one of the better um, food and plant-based documentaries that are out there. Yeah, I, uh, as a physician, I felt very much the same way about a lot of the things. I felt like uh, a lot of things you mentioned, I feel like they cherry picked a lot of the evidence and they presented it in a way to enhance the drama. Uh, I mean, that's after all what you want when you're making a movie. Um, but there were, uh, as I've said on some of the other episodes, a, a lot of things that were still worth highlighting or worth talking about. Now, mm -hmm. the notion that a single meal of meat can dramatically influence performance, as they uh, like to point out numerous times in the film, seems to run counter to most people's day-to-day -day experience. So how do you as a nutritionist make sense of that particular piece of evidence that was presented in the documentary? Well, I would definitely agree with you that I don't think that one meat-rich diet would have a tremendous impact on um, 
athletic performance. And I'll even point to an, um, a news article that was published. This is several years ago when Usain Bolt competed in his first Olympics. And they interviewed him afterwards. And if you recall during those Olympics, and I want to say they were the Beijing Olympics, he smashed world records left and right and was really the darling of those Olympics. And um, in the interview, they asked him what his experiences were like living in the Olympic Village during the two weeks that he was in China. And he stated that he pretty much subsisted on a diet of chicken nuggets um, while he was at the Olympics. McDonald's was the big sponsor of the Olympic Village. They had McDonald's all over the place. And it was calculated that he ate something like in the thousands of chicken nuggets, numbers of chicken nuggets. And so, um, you know, I think it's important to recognize that the likelihood that he ate chicken nuggets while he was doing all those months and years of training is quite, quite low that I'm sure he was following a highly regimented nutritional and, um, you know, a workout and, you know, exercise routine that was very, very um, programmed, highly detailed for him. Um, and so I think it just goes to show that, you know, one can do all of the training and the proper type of eating for an expected outcome, um, you know, and the fact that he was able to eat chicken nuggets and still smash world records, um, to me, doesn't mean a whole lot, you know, uh, that his body at that point was already pretty primed and well-tuned for the high performance that he achieved. And um, so I think it just goes to show that, you know, eating in a certain way really you have to look at the consistency and the habits that are formed over a period of time. And that one meal or even a few meals that are high in meat, high in processed foods, processed ingredients, saturated fat, et cetera. Um, you know, I think that one or a few of those probably not going to move the needle very much in terms of performance, but it's looking at the consistency of habits over a period of time that will help to determine determine what those outcomes are going to be. Right. It's that word consistency. Uh, you know, I say that to my athletes that I coach, it's all about, it's not about what you did today. It's about what you do over time and making sure that you're consistent in your build towards the race. I think the same thing can be said about diet. Uh, okay. Well with that, uh, sort of said, what, what evidence do you think they didn't include that you would have liked them to have? Well, I think that they, I, for example, in the documentary, the, the scene that's probably most talked about is the scene where the three um, NFL football players, the Miami Dolphins, are given the different types of burritos and their um, blood is drawn and it's centrifuged and they look at the um, cloudiness of the plasma in the test tubes. And, you know, the physician goes on to to say that, you know, when the plasma is cloudy, that it impacts endothelial function, which is, uh, you know, the cell lining of all of our um, blood vessels that really helps to control the vasodilation and constriction of our blood vessels that help to maintain the integrity of our blood vessels. And that having um, a bean burrito that contains meat or chicken results in this cloudy plasma, which can negatively impact endothelial function. So I think that that's very interesting, but I think that there are a lot of things that they didn't say when um, they were kind of undertaking this single meal experiment. 
um, which in and of itself, I have some problems with because there's no indication of what the athletes did prior to coming in um, for that feeding, what type of exercise or workout they might have done, what they might have eaten that day, what type of other stressors they were experiencing. And I wish that the physician would have also addressed other factors that impact endothelial function, that it goes beyond just one meal and the, um, you know, the nutritional profile or the fat content of one single meal. There are different genetic factors. There are hypertensive factors, um, other inflammatory markers, and not to mention stress levels. These could all have an impact on endothelial function. So I think that they kind of missed the boat on that um, one single experiment, but I think it was interesting to see and hopefully, you know, at least raises the awareness of the athletes and all those people watching that it's always a good idea to incorporate more vegetables and more plant proteins, um, into the diet. And uh, to me, the one that really sort of didn't pass the sniff test was the fireman. Uh, having them convert to a, a plant-based diet for a week and seeing these very dramatic drops in blood levels, I thought, thought was a very uh, sketchy and unfair way to present data because they weren't taking fasting blood levels. And I mean, there was all right. kinds of ways to, to, to juice, if you will, uh, those results and skew them in favor of what you were trying to show. So I, I thought they played mm -hmm. around with the science quite a bit in order, again, for dramatic effect. And I understand that. But like you said, it's still, you know, uh, it raises the points and it makes us us have this conversation and hopefully others as well. So I guess to, to that end, it, it has accomplished at least something. Uh, OK, so you probably see and I'm guessing since this movie's come out, you probably are hearing a lot more from athletes who are, you know, considering plant based diet or moving to a plant based diet. So what advice do you give people who say, you know what, I, you know, this movie had an impact on me and I'd like to consider more of a plant based diet. What kinds of things do you tell them, you know, a that they need to consider and be to be on the lookout for? First of all, I think that this is one of the great things that came out of this film is that it does um, heighten the awareness about the many benefits of incorporating whole plant foods into the diet. And I think that's always a win, whether it's somebody who's a general consumer, who's an av avid Netflix watcher or an elite athlete. I have had several athletes approach me um, after they've seen the documentary first to get my opinion on it and also to just explore whether or not it's feasible for them to adopt a plant-based diet. So um, one of the NBA athletes that I work with approached me and said that, you know, this movie really moved him and that he um, got really excited and he wants to adopt a plant-based diet. So the first thing we did was we sat down and we talked about all of the benefits that one could get, um, you know, in terms of adopting a plant-based diet. But then we also had to really look at the feasibility of it. Um, and I think that for this particular NBA athlete, and I will say that it's also important to understand that, um, you know, all, not all de sports demands are the same for athletes, right? And within the NBA, being within professional basketball, these athletes um, tend to travel much more than other types of athletes, especially when you look at professional sports, you know, across the board. Within the NFL, you know, they have games on the weekends and Monday night. You know, within the MLB, they may have 
you know, one or two games a week. But when you look at the NBA, they're playing four, sometimes five nights a week in some uh, during some parts of the season. Um, so the demands that are placed on their bodies are very difficult. And so when we talked about being able to get all of the nutrients that his body needs, not only to sustain, uh, you know, to sustain himself, to maintain the level of health that he has, but to also provide all of the fuel and micronutrients and macronutrients that he needs for daily activity, for daily recovery. If he could get all of those nutrients following a plant-based diet while traveling on the road, how feasible is that for him? So he tried it for a few days and then he got on a call with me and said, you know, I'm, I just feel like I'm not recovering very well. And I don't feel like I'm actually getting enough of the nutrients that I need because it's so difficult for me to find everything um, that I want to eat while I'm in and out of hotel rooms, on and off of airplanes. So he said that he would try to incorporate more whole food, plant, plant-based whole foods, but then really explore going fully plant-based during the off season, which makes a whole lot of sense to me. So I think it really depends on the athlete, um, whether or not they have the ability to prepare a lot of their own foods, if, if they have the means to do so, being open to learning more about nutrition and how to balance all of their nutrients. These are really important things to consider when uh, deciding whether or not to adopt a plant-based diet. Now, that's not to say that someone can be an uh, omnivore, uh, you know, and eat meat and plants. Um, the more one knows about nutrition and performance nutrition, I think the better athlete that person can become. And so I think that that's where it doesn't really matter if you're plant-based or if you're um, you know, omnivorous. I don't really like the term meat-based because that just assumes that there are no whole grains or vegetables and fruits being provided in the diet, which isn't really reasonable in my mind. So I think it really depends. I mean, it kind of answers your question, but I think that there are a lot of factors to consider when athletes want to adopt a plant-based diet. I think that this is where, um, you know, speaking with a nutrition professional can really help them to come to those decisions on their own. My job is to help guide the athlete, but not make those decisions for them. So if they're interested in trying something, adopting something, I am more than willing to go down that road with them um, so that we can determine kind of the feasibility and the sustainability of doing so. Yeah, you raised a couple of points that uh, I, I know myself going plant-based uh, have run into over the years. Uh, certainly travel uh, can be exceedingly difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. There are are now a lot of websites out there that aim to sort of fill the gap and help uh, people who are plant-based find places to eat when they're on the road. Happy Cow is one that comes to mind and uh, is one that I use frequently and is uh, is a great resource. Um, but traveling out of the country is where it really becomes difficult. I know especially when I've traveled to places like in Central America where they are very heavily meat-based with their diets and it becomes quite difficult. Um, the other thing you talked about and several of my guests in this series uh, mentioned the same kind of idea, which is rather than adopting plant-based 100% right from the get-go of making this kind of transition, uh, incorporating more plant-based into their diet and, and seeing how they feel with that.
that and then just sort of progressively doing more and more until they get to a point where they feel like that's what they want to do, if indeed that's what they want to do. So now specifically, I want to follow up on what you said about the athlete feeling in this case that they were having trouble recovering. So how should athletes, especially women who may feel like, you know, they, they need calcium, for example, in milk, how should, uh, and, and I've had this conversation with a friend of mine and, and pointed out that, well, milk isn't actually that great a source, but anyways, um, how, how should athletes, especially women, consider modifying their diets if they're not going to be consuming animal products to account for things like iron, calcium, and other micronutrient needs? Absolutely. And I think that this is where there are a lot of misconceptions out there about foods and what nutrients are um, good sources in different foods. And you're absolutely right that milk and dairy products are not the best sources of calcium. As a matter of fact, um, leafy green vegetables and um, uh, can be fat are, are a great source of calcium and a great source of iron. Right. It just goes to show what a fantastic marketing job the dairy producers have done. That's, yes. And I will say on that note, the same is true with vitamin C. Everyone thinks of citrus and oranges as being the best source of vitamin C. In fact, they are not. But the Florida citrus growers have done a fantastic job of marketing that information to us. Right. Um, so I'd say with that, that um, female athletes simply by incorporating more whole grain foods and more leafy green vegetables can get the um calcium and other minerals and micronutrients that they would need for recovery. And specifically when it comes to iron, uh, you know, this is me doing my kind of deep dive, putting my nutrition hat on. There are two forms of iron. So there's heme iron that we find in flesh-based foods, such as beef and chicken. Uh, and then there's non-heme iron, which we find in plant-based foods. And leafy greens are a good source of that. Now, when we think about plant-based foods, what they contain that um, animal foods or other flesh foods don't contain is a lot of fiber and phytates. And we have derive a lot of benefits from the fiber and the phytates um, when we consume plant-based foods. However, they can also bind some of the nutrients in those foods. So when it comes to non-heme iron, one of the ways that we can make that nutrient more available for absorption is by incorporating a vitamin C containing food along with the non-heme iron. So in a great example would be, let's say having a spinach salad with some sliced strawberries or grapefruit wedges in there or bell peppers. Um, you know, so you're providing a good source of vitamin C and there's iron available in the spinach leaves. So by consuming them together, you can really help to increase the amount of the non-heme iron that's available in those leafy greens. Um, and the same with calcium, you know, looking at calcium, zinc, other minerals um, that uh, the female body needs, that all bodies need for or recovery, we can derive all of those simply by eating um, a good variety of whole plants and leafy greens are a terrific source of that. So it sounds to me like uh, if I was going to come to you and, and ask, you know, for a rational evidence-based nutritional strategy as an athlete, it's going to be you know, uh, variety, uh, whether that be plant-based or whether that include animal products. Um, it's really a matter of not too much one way or the other. It's going to really just be incorporating variety. And um, if I was going to pin you down, 
would you say that athletes are better served by going plant-based or would you say that uh, keeping animal products in the diet is, I, there's probably, I, I don't want to say right way because there's really not a right way, but, but what, what would you advise if someone was coming to you with that question? Well, this is where I would say I refuse to be pinned down. To ah, that fair enough. Fair enough. I don't think that um, one size fits all. And I think that we all react differently to foods and we all perform um, better on, um, you know, foods that tend to suit our personal makeup, our metabolic makeup, our genetic makeup, the way that our bodies are structured. So there is not a one size fits all. So I think that um, people, athletes can perform well by being completely plant based I think that, as I mentioned, it does require a little bit more knowledge of nutrition and the nutrients found in foods, um, you know, as well as the the volume of foods and the frequency that need to be consumed of those new of those foods. But the same can be said with um, diets that incorporate uh, animal foods and flesh foods as well. So I think it is about finding that balance. So I like to use the term, you know, plant-based, but to me, that doesn't mean necessarily vegan, uh, that somebody can have a largely plant-based diet and occasionally eat flesh foods, you know, or dairy products, whether it's Greek yogurt or salmon, uh, you know, other types of fish that are out there. But I do think it's important to minimize the red meat that we eat, minimize the poultry and the pork products, because we have also, you know, the environmental um, concerns that exist with the footprint that these the flesh based foods leave behind. Um, and so I think there are a lot of factors. So part of it is, you know, health based part of it is what's going to aid with recovery and performance. But I think we also have to think a little bit more globally as well. Excellent points. Uh, Simin Livinson is a clinical associate professor of nutrition at Arizona State University, has a long history working with very high-level athletes on nutrition strategies. Thank you so much for joining me today on the TriDoc podcast to talk just a little bit about some of the nutritional questions that were raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. The pleasure has been all mine. Thanks so much. In the depths of winter, training for triathlons that are still months away can be hard. Many triathletes dread trainer rides because of the mental anguish that they have to endure to get them done. While many turn to Zwift or the Sufferfest, others seek solace in a good movie. But how do you know what film to watch and which one will be perfect for that really hard session on the weekend? Well, fortunately, the TriDoc podcast has you covered with this segment, Reels for Wheels, when I'm joined by my friend and colleague and multiple Ironman finisher to give you our suggestions for movies to watch while on the trainer. Welcome once again, Janetta. Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. So uh, we have covered a lot of ground in the few segments that we've recorded for uh, the new season of Reels for Wheels. What have you got for us this time? So I've got a classic heist film this time. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a relatively new film that I just absolutely loved watching on my trainer, which was Ocean's 8. Ah. The latest entry in the Ocean's phenomena. Ocean's 11, <laughs> Ocean's 8, Ocean's 12. we got to cover all the numbers, right? <laughs> well, but this at least takes a different bent than yes. the most recent ones. So yeah. Ocean's 11, I actually really enjoyed. That was that was an enjoyable heist film. It was a good time. And then for me, the series went downhill from there. Um, it just got more and more absurd, more twisted. Um, 
to be fair, believable might be the wrong word to use for these films, but they became even more unbelievable as they went along and really just seemed to be an excuse for a bunch of guys to hang out who were buddies with each other, Uh, which is fine. You know, I'm all for that. Well, the scenes scenes with Brad Pitt and um, George Clooney were always entertaining because they had great chemistry. Exactly. And I think that's exactly why they lasted as long as they did. Um, However, Ocean's 8 takes a bit of a turn in a different direction. So instead of focusing on the original group um, from the Ocean's 11, films, it focuses on Sandra Bullock's character, uh, who plays uh, Danny Ocean's estranged sister, um, who is decides to pull off a heist at the Met Museum um, in New York. Um, and so it's a very different film in that it's focused on a character we haven't met before, who's got, you know, ties to the original character, but has her own sort of style and her own sort of approach. Um, and all of the women involved, in, or all of the characters involved in the heist are women, um, which gives an opportunity for some great both dramatic and comedic acting um, from female actresses um, that we may not have seen in these kinds of roles before. So speaking of Kate Blanchett, yeah. Kate Blanchett is there to make it great. Yeah, um, I mentioned Kate Blanchett on the last episode as uh, making the movie Thor Rangarok that much better because of her presence. And I agree, she, she does do a, a spectacular turn once again in this film. Yeah, and I think um, you know there's a few other actresses who really surprised me with their roles. Um, so Anne Hathaway, who I've always thought of in sort of a fairly specific bucket um, of films that, that she's been involved in, uh, really steps outside of that, sort of takes um, a really interesting side-eyed look at perhaps her own celebrity, mm-hmm. um, and really is hilarious in the process, which I would yeah. not have expected. Yeah. Um, and then Mindy Kaling, who is just pretty much always entertaining, is there, which I appreciate as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I this is sort of this what this movie was the latest in a trend that um, has uh, started recently where you have reboots of popular franchises, but instead of male casts, female casts, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, I thought, I have not seen the Ghostbusters film. My daughter did, though, and she loved it. I actually really liked it a lot. Yeah, so, I mean, more, I I don't, I don't know that those movies need to be made. Like a Ghostbusters movie, I kind of like, I I have no problem with it. But, I mean, Ghostbusters to me was Ghostbusters. Uh, You know, if one day I'm sitting at home and it's on, I'll watch it kind of thing. I'm not going to necessarily go out. But my daughter loved it, and I think for that reason alone, great. Well, and I would argue, too, this film does it in the right way, which is to take an inspiration from a story and make something different out of it. The only thing I thought about this movie, and I really enjoyed it. I actually thought it was fun. It was romp. I love heist flicks and I love smart heist flicks. And this one was, you know, this one was fun. The only thing about it is I thought that Kate Blanchett's character and Sandra Bullock's character were exactly George Clooney and Brad Pitt. And they had almost like the same kind of chemistry, the same dynamic and everything else. And I kind of wish they had done it just a little bit differently. But um, that's, that's a minor quibble because honestly, the movie's fun. The movie's smart. The women in the movie are awesome. And they're all strong. And they're all, and especially uh, Sandra Bullock's character. Well, actually Kate Blanche's character too. They're all strong. And they're all, um, you know, on the ball. And you well, know. I think, too, they did enough different things with the heist itself that it made it a different kind of film. We would like to present you all with a hypothetical situation. How hypothetical? Not very, unless we screw up. $16.5 million in each of your bank accounts five weeks from now. <gasps> in three and a half weeks, the Met will be hosting its annual ball, celebrating its new costume exhibit. 
and we are going to rob it. Not the ball itself, but a very important set of diamonds that will be attending the ball. On the neck of Daphne Kluger. Who Rose will be dressing? The Toussaint. Very good. Once Daphne is inadvertently on board, we can then get the necklace out of the Cartier vault, hack the Met security system, thank you, Nine Ball, and infiltrate the gala, considered to be one of the most exclusive. The most exclusive. The most exclusive party invitation in America. So go home, get your affairs in order, because tomorrow we begin pulling off one of the biggest jewelry heists in history. Yeah. Yeah, which and, I appreciate. And I'm going to talk about a heist film, you know, in one of the coming episodes, which is similar in that what you think is the heist in this movie mm-hmm. is not actually the heist. Exactly. And that is similar to what I'm going to be in, in a movie that I'm going to be uh, discussing and recommending, uh, you know, at some point coming up uh, during this season. Uh, similar kind of thing. And and I, I like that because it really it's sort of like a, it's not really a bait and switch, but it's definitely a. It's like a magic trick, if you will. It's yeah. like a sleight of hand, right? Like you're, you're definitely looking at one thing, and what's really going on is is catching you by surprise when they give you the reveal. Right. And I think, you know, especially having seen the previous Oceans films, that's almost hard to do because you know there's going to be some twist coming. And right. yet I was still surprised by this, yeah. and I was really impressed with that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I still think Oceans 11 is the better movie, but this one is better than all of the other Ocean movies. I so would agree with that. Uh, this one is a sort of a number two. And, and definitely, very entertaining to watch. I, I wouldn't be doing this to high, you know, intensity intervals, but I think for you know, uh, one of those longer rides where you're just trying to like maintain, you know, a seventy percent effort kind of thing, this is a yep. great movie to watch. Yeah, and this is uh, the kind of film that I like to watch when I'm a little bit later um, in training. You know, about a month out from a race when you're doing those long um, yeah. intervals. Yeah. Um, it fits right into that for me. Okay, well, uh, last uh, episode, you talked about a kung fu movie hero uh, that starred Jet Li. Uh, This time, I'm going to talk about a kung fu movie, and this one is Ip Man. Uh, This is a 2008 uh, Chinese film uh, directed by Wilson Yip. Uh, no relation to the title titular Ip Man, um, and uh, stars Donnie Yen, who is uh, probably going to be unfamiliar to most uh, North Americans because he's only appeared in Chinese films. Uh, the movie takes place in 1935 in Foshan, South China, uh, where martial arts schools are pretty much all over the place. This uh, province or town in China is obviously the place where people come to learn martial arts, and Ip Man is the undisputed martial arts champion. Uh, the uh, this makes for the scene for all kinds of kung fu shenanigans, and uh, it's incredibly entertaining. The uh, fight scenes are. Uh, very uh, well choreographed. There's lots of mayhem. Nobody bleeds. Nobody seems to get uh, severely injured or die. And yet uh, there are bodies everywhere. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Ip Man is, uh, is, is, is himself quite uh, remarkable with his uh, proficiency for doing all manner of kung fu moves and looking very composed and completely indefatigable throughout all of his fights. Uh, the thing that I found particularly interesting about this film is uh, how much of a tremendous example of Chinese propaganda it is. So I have never seen... The, the Chinese films that I have seen before are movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon that we talked about a little bit on the last episode, which is a movie that was really made for international consumption. Ip Man is clearly made for domestic consumption. And you can see that because uh, as the story continues into the late 1930s, it... Um, 
uh, tells the story of the Japanese invasion and how uh, Foshan gets overrun by Japan and how the Chinese are then uh, pretty much enslaved and how uh, atrocious the Japanese overlords are to the local population and how Ip Man then has to uh, fight for his family survival. Um, the Japanese are portrayed in a light that is very much, you know, pretty standard for propaganda type movies. And uh, it, it's just kind of interesting to see how uh, another country uh, shows or ta- uses film to advance its own narrative, especially when it comes to international stories like World War II and how the Chinese still have a bone to pick with the Japanese. Um, So it's interesting from that standpoint. The fight scenes go throughout the whole movie and make it quite enjoyable. As I said, um, there's no blood. So, or, excuse me, I think there's there's a couple of very brief scenes where there is blood because the Japanese uh, are portrayed as being quite brutal. So in those scenes, there is. But for the most part, uh, the violence in this movie is orders of magnitude less than in the films we've talked about, like John Wick or anything like that. Uh, This movie has uh, really much more cartoonish and uh, low-level violence. Um, So, very enjoyable film. Uh, Unfortunately, I can only find it dubbed. I prefer watching movies in the original language and reading the subtitles, but uh, that obviously is not ideal for trainer movies. Uh, This one is dubbed, and I found it on both Netflix and Amazon Prime, so you can stream it and watch it uh, to your heart's content and listen to the dialogue and watch people's mouths moving at a different rate of speed. But uh, (laughs) it's quite entertaining. Uh, There are... Oh, and the other thing is Ip Man is based on a true story, which... uh, Well, I don't know how much of it is based on a true story, but there was an actual Ip Man who eventually left China and found refuge in Hong Kong. And and um, uh, that was interesting to me. There are two subsequent sequels to this movie that I did watch and that I don't recommend. They are propaganda to the max without the fun and, uh, mm. uh, you know, the fun story and the fun fight scenes that you see in the first movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but certainly one that I'll be adding to my list to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah, it's a good one. And again, like uh, I've said previously, uh, I, I will uh, often include clips uh, in uh, in our discussions, but this is probably one where I won't put a clip in simply because uh, the dubbed language uh, is is somewhat stilted and not, not quite as good as uh, I think it would have been in the original language, which nobody would understand anyways. Yeah. Well, I'm curious too. I'll be I'd be interested to see it and see some more of the historic context because certainly, I mean... Not surprisingly, there were a lot of contention surrounding uh, Japanese occupation in China and a lot of really terrible atrocities that did happen. So I'm curious to see how it gets played out. Yeah, no doubt. I I mean, they gloss over, you know... um the Maoist revolution. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they just kind of like... They focus in on specific... Yeah, uh, they, they focus in on the yeah. parts they want. The historic but, part exactly. is... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt the Japanese... Selective history. Yeah. Exactly. It's selective history telling and told in a way. I mean, the 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 way the, um, the Japanese... Uh, uh, I mean, a great example is how the Japanese keep the Chinese uh, subservient until Ip Man wins his, you know, penultimate fight against the Japanese leader. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden the Chinese, you know, rise up. These Chinese peasants rise up and uh, somehow overwhelm the armed Japanese guards suddenly. Mm. Yeah, that like, seems suspicious. You know, so, yeah, it was a little, it was, it, it was very, um, it was very entertaining to watch it from that, you know, standpoint and just sort of be there like, huh, yeah, okay, good. But, yeah. but again, didn't take away from the fact that yeah. I enjoyed it. 
made a trainer ride that much more enjoyable. So uh, great. So our two uh, recommendations today, Ocean's 8 and Ip Man, will both be added to the lists on the Reels for Wheel archive. It can be found on both the TriDoc podcast website as well as the TriDoc coaching website. And we'll have two new movies to recommend for you on the next episode of the TriDoc podcast. Janetta, thanks so much for joining me once again on Reels for Wheels. It's been a blast as always. At the top of the show today, I made mention of the many people who have helped make the TriDoc podcast successful over the course of its first year. I want to take a moment now before the end credits to acknowledge one more of those integral people. She also happens to be one of my closest friends in the world and has joined me for a couple of episodes, and that, of course, is Kelly Poix. Kelly and I have been great friends since we met randomly at the 70.3 race in Calgary in 2014. When she and her family moved to Denver a couple of years ago, I couldn't have been happier. We have been pretty inseparable since that time as training and racing partners, and our friendship transcends the distance that is soon to separate us as she and her husband Simon are moving with their kids back to Australia next week. Kelly, I'm going to miss you so very much, and while your sister Trina and parents Graham and Sue may have won this battle, I'm here to tell you that I'm in it for the long run, and I and all of your friends here We'll be trying ceaselessly to get you and Simon back here eventually. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. On the next episode of the TriDoc Podcast, I'll continue my series into some of the issues raised by the Netflix documentary The Game Changers. For the third episode in the series, I'll be joined by an athlete who has gone entirely plant-based with his diet and feels as though he has benefited from that decision in every way. Daniel Wrenches is the vegan-powered athlete, he will be here for the next episode to talk about his decision and how it's impacted him. I will, of course, also have a medical question to answer and another episode of Reels for Reels. Until then, train hard, train healthy.